0: Hey, listeners, just a quick heads up that this episode includes occasional swearing. If you're listening with young people or are sensitive to this kind of language, email our producer, Noah at thewalrus.ca for a family friendly version of this episode.
1: We're not going to Mars to live. <laughs> we're just we're just giving up a little bit of money and a little bit of power.
0: I'm Hannah Sung. Welcome to What Do We Do Tomorrow, a podcast from Six Degrees at the Institute for Canadian Citizenship and the Walrus Lab. 2020 has been a year of racial reckoning with Black Lives Matter and a pandemic that has no mercy for vulnerable groups of people. We are grappling with a lot. In Canada, our very concept of nationhood has been challenged for years by a growing understanding that things are not right when it comes to the land. Whose land is this land? Who has the right to resources of the land? Tensions are flaring around Nova Scotia's lobster fishery. At issue is the rights of indigenous lobster harvesters to fish outside the commercial season. Rights that are protected by Supreme Court of Canada ruling. As Ross Lord reports, the violence is unfolding despite weeks of negotiations aimed at finding common ground threats
1: and violence are intensifying in the nova scotia lobster fishery the cops can't even control these guys
0: that clip was from global news in october of 2020 about violent attacks by commercial fishers against mi'kmaq fishers whose right to fish for a moderate livelihood is protected by the supreme court of canada conflicts over the land and sea spill into the news all the time from massive no dapple demonstrations in 2017 against the Dakota Access Pipeline, to railway blockades across Canada in 2020 on behalf of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation traditional government who did not give consent for a pipeline to go through their land. Each news story may make it seem like these incidents are each unique, but really there's a long history of our society continually struggling with the question of whose land this is. Today's episode is about reimagining territory. What does it mean to live here together on treaty territory, in some places unceded territory in Canada, where treaty law gets broken over and over? We're going to talk about this very big, complex issue and try to figure out how we fit into the conversations and the actions we should take. Our guest is Ryan McMahon. Some people know him as a comedian, and that's because he is. In 2012, he became the first Indigenous comedian to have his own one-hour mainstream TV comedy special, ever. Since then, however, his work has grown to include journalism and activism, with all of it revolving around the urgency of what telling stories can potentially do to change this nation's relationship with the original peoples of this land. I started our conversation by trying to get to know him a little better. I just want to start by getting to know you a bit more. I want to know about the seed of your activism and public work. Did you know as a kid that you'd grow up to do this kind of thing?
1: No, I, I had no idea that this was going to be the path. And you know, I can also say that I didn't want this to be the path. And I don't think any Indigenous person that finds himself in this discourse in Canada wants to do this work. I would love to wake up and consider whether I should go golfing or fishing. I would love to uh, go to sleep at night, not thinking about whether Canada is a safe place for my daughters, who are young Indigenous women, you know, to grow up. I, I would like to be able to, you know, consider future possibilities for all Indigenous people in my home territory, in Treaty 3, But for people across Canada writ large and on some level, you know, like I stepped into this work because my career as a comedian and as a writer privileged me and gave me a platform and then it became a question of responsibility. And so I'd much rather be telling jokes to you, Hannah, than talking about indigenous nationhood and broken treaties. Maybe I could be telling you jokes about Indigenous nationhood and broken treaties.
0: Which you do well
1: when you do it. I try to, but it's exhausting. Indigenous people across Canada wake up every day and check social media to see who's died. And that's our reality. And that's not something we choose. But it's the work that I think some of us are called to do. And um, there's an emergency in Canada that we're paying attention to. And I'm happy to say that in the last few years, the social responsibility question in Canada has really changed. And more people are paying attention now than ever. And that's really important.
0: When did you know you were called to do this work? Was there a moment?
1: No. You know, for me, I think the real call was as a youth, just kind of understanding that if I wanted things to change, that I I had to be a part of something. And so, I was always a part of youth councils and organizing uh, as a young person, and so that I suppose is the start of you know if we're going to use the word activism that would be that would be the start of it for me and and I want to be clear, and this is more directed at young indigenous people like the work that is happening now is not new. the indigenous resistance goes back hundreds of years, and you know the the truth is is that. Indigenous people from my homelands started walking to Ottawa just years after Treaty 3 was signed.
0: Tell us your homelands, the geography of it. Sure. How far Sure. It is. sure.
1: So I'm from what is called Northwestern Ontario in Treaty 3 territory. And so that's 55,000 square miles west of Thunder Bay between Thunder Bay and Winnipeg. That's roughly my home territory is um, Kuchiching First Nation. I was born and raised in Fort Francis, Ontario. It's a small community on the border of Manitoba, Minnesota, and Ontario. And so our leaders, you know, after signing treaty in 1873, it took them about 20 years to consider what their political move was going to be because the treaty had never been lived up to. And the earliest I've seen is our leaders petitioned Ottawa and went to Ottawa in 1903. So you can imagine that when people we're going to petition the government in Ottawa, just what an undertaking that was. And there were people designated to do that work. And so the work that we're doing now, whether we call it Land Back or I Don't Know More, or we point to Standing Rock or Elsa Sabuktuk or Burnt Church or out in Wet'suwet'en territory, this is an extension of the ongoing resistance of Indigenous people in Canada. And I think people are shocked when they learn that, that they think that these little flare-ups are over you know, these little pieces of legislation or corners of policy that just aren't working for Native people. But um, this is the truth in this country, is that the resistance has always been there.
0: Do you think there's a willful ignorance of understanding that Indigenous-Canadian conflict kind of all boils down to the land? I mean, do you think that people understand that, generally speaking? Do you even agree with that?
1: I mean, I agree that all Canadian policy from Confederation on has always been about land. I mean, look at the first thing that happened, right? Get the Indians out of the way, out of sight, out of mind, put them on reserved land. I mean, this this is a business deal between Canada and Indigenous people. What happens to the contract when the contract is broken? Aboriginal rights and title is the law of the land here. Um, but we've seen through time that that does not make a difference to Canada. And so... You know, the project was always about removing Indigenous people from the land to make way for progress. And that's the crux of what settler colonialism does and is. And it's the ongoing project today in this country.
0: You know, it makes me think of this uh, recent column that I read by Tanya Talaga, author Tanya Talaga. This was in the Globe and Mail, where she said, you know, treaties are what built Canada, They were the building blocks upon which, you know, if treaties didn't exist, Canada wouldn't exist. But I think that there's such a convenient non-understanding of treaties from the general population. And really, if I just look at myself as an example, I think about what I learned and didn't learn in school. I was raised in the Canadian educational system. So that lack of information that's baked into our education, I mean, what? can we do about that how can we change that if we're not a teacher if we're not somebody who you know creates educational policy what can we do about it
1: well there has to be a curiosity and there has to be an openness to understanding what this country actually is patriotism or nationalism like in, in this country does not work especially when it's built on on false pretenses right and what the great gift of Canada 150 was just a few years ago was the chance for Indigenous people to go, uh, uh-uh, uh, we aren't coming to the party. Like, yeah,
0: Canada 150 did not go the way that I think the plans were set out. Well, how,
1: how high in inside do you want me to tell you stories about different broadcasters and people that asked me to do projects for them only to learn that Indigenous people weren't on board with the project? Like they expected us to come and like kind of like, put on our Indian clothes and like, you know, sing powwow songs and dance for everyone. When the truth was, it was, it was identified pretty early that this was a chance to reject the narrative and to, to tell our Was that
0: an organized effort?
1: No comment. <laughs> uh, in part, without going too far into it. Yes, there, there, there was some organization behind the scenes of people with platforms, people with opportunities, such as myself to present a different narrative and to problematize this birthday party. And this is an important moment, uh, Canada 150, because it allows us to put into the minds of Canadians that things aren't okay. And I don't know how many more times we have to do this. I mean, we have the Royal commission on Aboriginal people. It's literally called a Royal commission. It doesn't get higher than that in this (laughs) Like we're, we're hearkening back to the queen Uh Like, what are we, are we, we're doing this? Okay, well, we're doing this.
0: The links are very clear.
1: We have the incredible work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which by the way, anytime I say those words, I always point back to the fact that that was only possible because of residential school uh, survivors themselves who through their civil suit decide to put together a pot of money to create the TRC. It was not the government of Canada. It was through civil litigation and successful civil litigation by residential school survivors themselves that create the funding to even have a TRC.
0: Wow. Thank you for mentioning that. That is something that I didn't know.
1: It's a very important detail. It's that residential school survivors themselves, really slow this down, like residential school survivors themselves gave us the TRC. They gave us the opportunity to correct the record. They gave us the opportunity to imagine something different. And had that not happened, who knows where we would be, right? And so we have the work of the TRC. We now have the the final report into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. And so if Canadians are really wishing to engage, they would go out and get those three pieces of work and really sit with them, study them. And hand them out at Christmas to their relatives because there's nothing closer to a statement of facts for this country than those three documents. And the fact that we even had an inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in this country should set the footwork for Canadians to get out there, to mobilize, to dig in, and to start asking, what can we do? And I'm uncomfortable with being asked, what can Canadians do? I don't give a shit what Canadians do. Do anything do something because the work falls on indigenous people over and over and over again to imagine a better country, to create a better country. We waste our lives doing this work on behalf of a country that doesn't give a shit whether we're alive or dead. And so it really has to fall onto those holding the keys to the apartment, you know, to let us in. And I know these are harsh words, but this is for me where it's at. Like we've, We know too much now. And this isn't like a TED talk that we get to drop into and drop out of. This is life or death for indigenous people. And, you know, I'm working on the second season of the Thunder Bay podcast. And while Mm -hmm. working on it, there have been eight deaths, mysterious deaths. And I don't mean mysterious in the true crime way. Mysterious in like, we don't know what happened in Thunder Bay since I started in the summer. A young 17-year-old girl uh, just died in a soccer field in Thunder Bay just two weeks ago, and so the policies, the legislation, the wishy-washiness of the of the discourse costs people their lives, and um, so we don't get to tune out if you're serious. And I and I feel like we have so much information now that there's no excuse. So my patience for the you know what can I do question is uh, is gone. So maybe mm. I'm not the best person for this conversation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, you are the best person because all of your attitudes and knowledge come out of both your lived experience and your immense research. So it's really important to connect with all of that, you know, and I wonder if, if you don't have any patience for, you know, the question of what does the average person do? I'd love to know what you feel like leadership in Canada should do.
1: This is where I think, you know, the average Canadian can actually make a difference is that we need to hold our leaders to account. We need to be pissed off that in the province of Ontario, Nescatanga has gone without clean drinking water for 26 years. So when people at 1492 Lamback Lane in Caledonia are calling for the halt to development to look at what has gone on there in terms of the development of their, the last piece of land left their homelands. Canadians should be on board with that project. We should pump the brakes and ask questions every chance we get and, and start demanding from our political leadership that we do better, that the status quo is not good enough for us anymore. There's a saying that I've been using, we become the stories we tell ourselves. And if we continue to tell ourselves the settler myth that everything's going to be okay in Canada, well, we're just going to replicate this over and over again. But if we start telling ourselves more nuanced, more complex stories that come from Indigenous perspectives themselves, I think we go further faster. And I'll speak to the racist Joe Canada's out somewhere middle Alberta, middle Saskatchewan that don't have any room for this conversation. They're not in
0: any specific location. Well, they can be anywhere.
1: That's, that's, that's true. Good point. <laughs> um, but, but I'll speak to them for a minute. I mean, if you're pissed off about your tax dollars and X, Y, and Z as it relates to Indigenous folks, hold your governments to account. Because as I've indicated earlier in our conversation, my political leadership first went to Ottawa in 1903. We are ready for the conversation. We have answers. We have ideas. And we know how to live our governance systems, our economy, our political systems that work inside of being in good relationship to other political systems, the systems that created this country, they're all still there. But it's the political will that needs to be there now. And I will say this, as harsh as my words have been here today, I still believe in this country. And that's a very difficult thing for me to say. I take a lot of shit from people when I say that, but, but I do. I believe in this experiment. This is a beautiful experiment. I want to be in a country that celebrates diversity. I want to be in a country that is without civil war. I want to be in a country where we can all send our children together and feel good about the lives they are able to live here. We all want the same things. How we get there, though, is an open question and it's up for debate.
0: I love knowing that you do have hopefulness. I, defi- about- I
1: definitely do. Yeah, And I'm not just yeah. saying it. I I really do. And I've said this in all of my critical work. And I say it in my comedy is that this is worth fighting for. That's why I'm so mad. If I didn't believe in it, I wouldn't fucking care. I wouldn't be here. You know, I, I wouldn't be. And it's also a cop-out for me to say, well, this is for my daughters. Like, I want my daughters to live in a... Bullshit. I want to live in a good place, too. I want to celebrate and live the same types of lives as others. And by the way, obviously, I'm sitting here as a white passing, able-bodied, straight man who enjoys immense privilege that, you know, my brown family does not, that so many other indigenous people don't enjoy. And so my job is to hold the line and to create space for everybody because I have that privilege. And so, yeah, I'm hopeful up to a point. And my sleeves are rolled up, ready to work.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that because, you know, as we talk about the problems, it can be very overwhelming. Mm. Obviously, we can think about different political systems. You know, we can think about band councils, traditional uh, governance, uh, the Canadian federal government, unceded territory. Like, oh, my God, how are all these political systems supposed to mm-hmm. disentangle themselves? Living on the same land, yeah. extracting resources from the same land, as you said, in a business agreement. And in fact, I, I would love to know, you know, what your thoughts are on that. Like what path you see forward.
1: Well, if the federal government can make transfer agreements to provinces, I mean, it's not that complicated, Hannah. This is the, really the thing. It's the original spirit and intent of the agreement that forms this country. So when Joe Canada tells me like, well, get over, it's time to move on. It's like, dude, you could say something like that if, if we lost in war. So the discourse in America, of course, is that there were Indian wars, the North and the South trample over Native American communities throughout the United States. And the West was one that did not happen here. And when it did war of 1812, indigenous people were fundamental to that war, to to the creation of what now becomes Canada. And so you can't have that type of conversation. You have to point back to what actually happened here, which were often peaceful and and negotiated treaties. I mean, some of the earliest treaties in Canada are called the peace and friendship treaties. I've, I've long said that there would be no shame in opening up treaty tables to have those conversations. I think that We must also acknowledge that not everywhere across Canada are there treaties. There are a lot of unceded territories that don't have treaties. Those territories would have to negotiate on their own and with each other regionally and territorially. They will figure that out. They can figure that out. But for us in treaty territories, like we have the answers. We have the understanding that would need to go into those types of conversations we've just never been given the opportunity under this colonial project to be in that conversation together.
0: And don't you think, I know that you have a certain level of fatigue with trying to talk to, um, joke you public, but don't you think that if we want to reimagine this sharing of the land that everybody needs to get on board with that curiosity, as you had said earlier on?
1: They, that'll never happen. And, you know, the truth is, is one of the greatest privileges in my in my career is that I get to travel across Canada and have these conversations with Indigenous people and with Canadians writ large. And make no mistake, most of this country is not on board, even with the reconciliation discourse. Like most people that I talk to go like, yeah, it's not me. I didn't fucking do anything. I don't, why, why are we talking about this? Like I got bills to pay. I'm trying to feed my kids and we're in a complicated time now. You know, everyone's going through something now. So like, To add on to this like social justice question, oh my God, that's most of Canada. I mean, we, Hannah, fly in some pretty cool circles that are open to this conversation. And if you spend your life inside of a university, if you spend your life inside of, you know, nonprofit organizations, sure, you may have come across these conversations. Most Canadians don't. Most Canadians turn the channel. Most Canadians haven't read Alicia Elliott's book. You know, most people can't access this conversation. And so we're not there yet. And that's why Indigenous arts and culture, music, visual art, literature, comedy become so important because we can offer a doorway into that conversation. And, and, and I always contend that the political conversation in this country is not going to lead this conversation. It's the arts and culture conversation. It's what we're doing now that I think brings us further, faster. And it's accessing Indigenous voices. It's accessing those that are living these things day to day that help Canadians consider the other, consider something different, consider a story they'd never heard before. That's the generous offer that Indigenous storytellers make, right? We build a doorway for you to walk through and they walk away having considered a perspective they hadn't heard before or that they, they can't access. We just continue building those doors for people to walk through. And this is where, you know, the conversation around over-resourcing Indigenous storytellers right now, which I'm on board with, is so important because we there should be Indigenous stories everywhere. That's my company's tagline, actually. And I think that when we get comfortable with hearing those stories and we're familiar with those stories, we'll be okay.
0: When it comes to Indigenous excellence and joy and art, who is it that you're really into right now?
1: In terms of what's exciting me right now, I mean, Cherie Dimaline's work, Eden Robinson's work, the resurgence of of voices like Maria Campbell, Lee Maracle. We mentioned Alicia Elliott earlier. I just think that the literature space um, for Indigenous writers right now is so interesting. Billy Ray Belcourt's got a new book coming out. You know, you look to Ariel Twist, Joshua Whitehead, these are, these are names that are going to be mainstay names in Canada uh, for a long time coming. And so for me right now, books are where it's at. I don't want to quote Drake too often because I'm just a chubby dad <laughs> that is not cool enough to quote Drake. But Drake in a song with Future says, what a time to be alive. And, and this is, I guess, to harken back to the hopefulness or the, the optimism that I might have I really think that like 30 or 40 years from now, they're going to write books about this time, you know, because we are in a moment right now where as dire as things are, and as, as dark a picture as I've painted here today, something's changing. And I can say I'm at a weird age in my early forties now where I can remember being a kid and not feeling like there was anything out there for us. And and I remember sitting at tables as a young youth leader and youth councils and different things, listening to chiefs and executive directors and people talk about blockading highways and blowing up railroad tracks and like really bringing Canada to its knees so it will listen to us. And while we're definitely still in that moment, that discourse is is more rare now. And while the politics is still ugly in this country and God damn it, we have a long way to go. Something else has changed. And it's our kids that are needing to do the work through the education system to understand what has gone on. And that's unfair. It's unfair that our children are burdened with understanding the very ugly, dark history here. It should not fall on to seven and eight year olds mm-hmm. to read books about residential schools. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have to, they will, but we can do better. We must do better. And um, but
0: that's why I love when you talk about the arts, because the arts are often seen as a frill. It's the first thing to go, but it's actually the first thing to connect with people and connect people with ideas. And when you say that it's an unfair burden on our children to learn about residential schools, I mean, my children are learning some things that are just fun for them, which is really neat. Like, I didn't get that growing up in the 80s. I think you and I are the same age. And, you know, my six-year-old started speaking Ojibwe words at the dinner table. And I was like, who taught you that? And she told me her teacher did. <laughs> I was like, what? I love it. It's so cool. And um, I got this series of books for them called Pemmican Wars. So it's a graphic novel. I was like, come eat your dinner. And they would not leave these books. And I thought, well, I think there's history in there. Like, I need to go and read these books now. <laughs> you know, They're like for yeah, an eight-year-old, but I need to read them now. Um, but it was bringing them some joy it was something that was really fun and interesting for them you know mm. um
1: and they're like they're like mom we're not coming to dinner unless you're <laughs> serving pemmican <laughs> you're like,
0: yeah they don't like my food at the best of times i don't know <laughs> about that
1: <laughs> are you trying to tell the world right now hannah sung that you don't have a pemmican recipe is that what's going on <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not yet. Who knows how this winter is going to go? We'll see.
1: Yeah. We'll see. Oh, those are stark times. If you're like <laughs> pounding dry meat into your front steps to try to <laughs> try to make pemmican.
0: The keto diet. Call, let's just go call for it. Just call,
1: call me. I'll come and help.
0: <laughs> All right. So, you know, I, I love laughing with you. I really do. And uh, I feel like we've covered a lot of different things that are the ugly side of what's going mm-hmm. on. But you know, they're... We have to, right? That's what we have to do.
1: Well, well and I, I mean, laughing at the ugly side. See, this is, so this is where I think comedy is so important. So, from my perspective as an Ojibwe person, our trickster character is is called Nana Nanabuju. Nana Boju. and that character is a teacher, right? And so there's this like old adage: laughter is medicine. Laughter is medicine. Laughter is what got us through hard times. And well, okay, like we can say like, yeah, like generally like oppressed peoples have turned towards teasing and laughter as a way to cope with difficult times. But uh, for me, my understanding of that goes so much deeper that actually the laughter and the teasing and the pointing at the hypocrisy is fundamental to life and existence. And so what my job actually is, is to point at those things and go, see, isn't that some bullshit? Here it's on a little birch bark platter for everyone to enjoy. (laughs) And that's what Nana Bojo always did was there was no scornful sort of like you're grounded kind of story. It was always like, here's what's wrong. Here's an offer for you to consider, which may correct what is wrong. And uh, let's have some laughs along the way. And so while we can say laughter is medicine and all of that, it's also fundamental to our worldview as Indigenous peoples. And when you go across Canada or across North America or across the world, Indigenous cultures have these trickster figures embedded into our law systems, embedded into our stories, our histories, and our contemporary futures. And so I think you're right, Like that laughter piece is so important because it is a teacher.
0: Mm -hmm. You are my teacher, you know. Oh, well, that's... Yeah, I follow your work. You do so much work; it's impossible to follow all of it. But I'm trying to keep up with you.
1: Well, it, it's I just it's an emergency to me, and and again, the privilege I have and the platform I have to do some of the things I do is not lost on me. And I, I really, really, really try hard to do right by folks, and it's a responsibility that I take very seriously. And back around 2010, when I started really traveling full time for comedy. People would just drop stories into my lap and they'd say, you need to tell this. You need to share this with people. Tell people where we're from. Tell them our story. You know, I go, okay, well, I, you know, I have to figure out how to do that. So that would put me on a path of like trying to better understand who they were historically, contemporarily and otherwise. And like, for me, this work is about relationships. And so once you start building relationships with people, you get invited back over and over again to listen to more stories. And um, and and by the way, I'm not inferring that I should be speaking for Haida people because I went to Haida Gwaii and was given a handful of stories to share. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that the perspective that I can have and share is one that is grounded in in story from Indigenous perspectives. And so I think that that for me is like, that's the privilege and space that I, that I have. And it's one that I take very seriously. And it's one that uh, I feel very honored to
0: have. So how can people share in some of that responsibility with you? You know, the name of this podcast is What Do We Do Tomorrow? And I really believe that we've got to get out of a listen and learn phase. And we've got to do things. But, you know, I I hear you on, on how... It's not about, a, you know, one simple solution or one little, you know, magical ash, but I still want to know from you, for the people listening who are like really on board with you, they are the people in the cool circles, as you say, they're mm-hmm. willing, they're open. You know, what do we do tomorrow?
1: Well, there's a bunch of different ways to answer that. So I'll take three stabs at it. First and foremost, it's happening. You see people shutting down Young and Dundas all the time right? You're talking about hundreds of Torontonians, sometimes thousands, you know, that will go and walk and march for uh, for the cause. That's happening. That's new. Secondly, we do see more and more efforts inside of our industry, um, inside of publishing, inside of media, to not just open doors, to kick open doors for Indigenous people. That's happening. That's good. But this is where we've stopped. This is where we fall short. Is like, well, Then if you're serious, you'll let me use your cottage for a month in the summer. Like, hand over the keys. My family would like to take a vacation too. And that's where everyone's like, well, a month? Mm, We could do a weekend maybe. I'm using that not as a serious serious petition. I know the audience. The Walrus audience definitely has uh, cottages. so. My email is info at com, (laughs) But I'm using it more as a question of like, what are we actually willing to do? Like when the rubber hits the road, you know, what are we actually willing to do? And I think that's an open question in Canada. I would say that the actions that you can actually take tomorrow are to just re-educate yourself. You need to go back and read the Pemmican Wars with your kids, right? You need to go back and start putting other ideas into your mind and, and start to think about other possibilities and what this country needs is a radical reimagination of future. And it should not be a threat to Joe Canada that indigenous people want to live free and unencumbered lives in their homelands. In fact, it should be the goal. I mean, if we really care about indigenous lives and we really care about the future for indigenous children, That's the way we should be thinking. Assimilation didn't work. Think about everything that was tried. And I'm telling people to pause this podcast right now and really go away and think about it. Go for a walk and really think about this. What more cowardly act is there than to take indigenous children away from their families, move them into schools and make them live there to go to school? There is not a more cowardly act on this planet, frankly, for me. And we made it through that. That's an actual miracle. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's an actual miracle. And it has taken some pretty high profile indigenous people to say in places like the National with Peter Mansbridge or, or, or other places like this to say like, close your eyes, Joe Canada, picture your children. Now picture those children packing a suitcase and leaving. And so these moments of pause, I think, should be, they should be very difficult to stomach. And that should lead us to do the next thing. And so there is no easy answer. And for those just entering the conversation, I would say, go slow. Move very slowly and intentionally through the conversation as you educate yourself on These issues because you're going to have a lot of questions. You're going to read things and learn things that you hadn't heard before and hadn't considered. Reconciliation as a project begins with the individual. And, um, I always say, you know, strong hearts to the front. So when you feel strong and you feel like you can lead and that there's something you want to do, do it. Try it. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fumble our way through this project, but, um, it's all hands on deck because as we said earlier, you know, this is, this is life or death. It's, it's a real, it's a, it's it's a real moment we're in and we need, we need as many good hearts and good minds as, um, as we can muster right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I appreciate all of that, your time, your commitment, your effort, and, you know, sharing all the knowledge with us. Thank you so much, Ryan.
1: Uh, keys to the cottage mm-hmm. info at <laughs> Ryan McMahon com. And this has really been my pleasure, Hannah. Thank you to, uh, to you and your team for sharing the space.
0: So what do we do tomorrow? Ryan says join a protest and incorporate Indigenous stories and art into your life. I mentioned the Pemmican Wars graphic novels my kids were reading. The books are called A Girl Called Echo and they're by Governor General Award winning author Katharina Vermette, who is Métis. We also mentioned journalist Tanya Talaga, Her national bestseller, Seven Fallen Feathers, really should be required reading for everyone. It investigates the deaths of Indigenous high school students in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And that's also the focus of Ryan's new podcast with Canada Land, the second season of Thunder Bay. Follow his work there. And thank you for listening to What Do We Do Tomorrow? Our last episode was all about how video games can be part of building new, inclusive communities. So go back and check it out if you haven't already. Coming up, we will have episodes on racism and food and what it might look like if we built our economy to care for all of us. To get all our future episodes, make sure you're subscribed. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This episode was produced by Noah Snyderman. Executive producers are Aisha Jara of ICC and Six Degrees, the Global Forum for Inclusion, and Mihira Lakshman at The Walrus Lab. I'm your host, Hannah Sung. If you like what you heard, share this, forward this podcast to a friend. And you can get on all the social media. Tell us your thoughts on what do we do tomorrow. Use the hashtag TomorrowPodcast. And don't forget to rate and review at Apple Podcasts. To see more from the ICC and Six Degrees, please visit inclusion.ca. Thanks for listening.